Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are continuing to explore the scriptures dealing with specific prophecy terms, and we are in our third set of um, seven sets of two prophecy terms showing the uh, contrasting of these terms that a lot of times when you just casually read through your Bible, you don't often appreciate that they are dramatically different in their meaning, even though they may sound alike. And of course, we're in point number three. If you've been following along with us for a while, if you're with us for the first time, a special welcome to you. We're working off of a worksheet that's available from the radio station here, and it is listing these seven sets of terms. And we are in the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that Jesus Christ preached when he came to the earth the first time 2,000 years ago. And this is being contrasted with the gospel of grace, which is the gospel that Jesus um, started to preach when he turned from the gospel of the kingdom, which was addressed to Israel, the nation of Israel. And of course, if Israel had accepted the gospel of the kingdom, the world, you and I at that time, would have benefited from it. But Israel did not receive Jesus. Therefore, they did not see the gospel come to fruition, which would have been the kingdom on earth that, uh, as they were taught to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It would have happened then, but it didn't because of their disobedience and their hardening of their heart. So then Jesus turned to the gospel of grace and then opened it up to you and I, to the whole world, to Jew and Gentile alike, based totally on faith. And of course, we'll get into that in uh, future programs. But we're dealing now with the gospel of the kingdom, and we've been we've spent a number of programs developing the background of this gospel of the kingdom by looking at the Old Testament and then coming into the New Testament to to show that Jesus was indeed the prophesied Messiah, the king, the conqueror that had been prophesied. And now we're into the point, in fact, we're in Matthew chapter 4, and that's where we left off in our last program, Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to start with verse 17. And this is where we're going to get into the specifics of what Jesus preached. And before... Uh, let me just go ahead and say it up front here, as I, I think I've said a few times in the past programs, that um, you may be surprised to learn or you know hear for the first time or maybe didn't quite appreciate it, but when Jesus came the first time in the beginning of his ministry, and actually through most of his ministry, because Israel did not turn their backs on him and on his gospel, until the latter part of his ministry of just over three years. But for most of his ministry, he was preaching a gospel that did not have the cross, 
Therefore, it did not have the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, it did not have a belief requirement in his, in his message of believing that he uh, died on the cross, was buried, and was resurrected the third day. There is no sense in any of his um, pronouncements about justification by faith in that act. Uh, the church was not in view at this time. And it's an important thing to understand as you look at the Bible uh, literally, um, and another way to look at it is dispensationally, that uh, things were revealed, um, illuminated, I should say, progressive illumination as we went along, as you go along through the Scripture here. And if you can look at the major context and you can differentiate uh, one time period from another time period, the Bible really makes more and more sense that just because Jesus is speaking does not mean that he's speaking to the church. Most of the time that Jesus spoke, he spoke to Israel. Now, yes, there are applications because Jesus spoke about the moral and ethical nature of the law which would be an application for the church as well. It just uh, applies to the everybody's life, if you will, if they choose to follow the Lord. But in most of the cases, he is speaking to Israel, and if we can understand that he is speaking to Israel here and when it was before the church was ever mentioned, it helps to really clarify what he's talking about. And uh, I think you'll see as we go through these next several scriptures, because we're going to uh, start out here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and as we get up to chapter 5, which is the beginning of the three chapters in Matthew that are called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is addressing Israel about the offer of the kingdom right then and there. He would have started the process of setting up his kingdom. Of course, that hasn't happened yet because they turned their back, but he was prepared to do it right then if they would simply believe that he was the promised Messiah, the promised king. So when we start in verse 5, we're going to get into some of those specifics. And I want to show you, and I hope you stay with us because it will take may take a few programs here, but I want to show you that what Jesus talked about here had already been offered once before. It was offered way back in the Old Testament, 1,400 years before Christ. It was offered here 2,000 years ago, or, or if you will, 2,000 years ago to us. The first offer was 3,400 years before us today, and it will be offered again at the end of the tribulation. So it, to me, understanding that, seeing that from the scriptures helps me, and hopefully it helps you as well see the nature of God and his love for his people, his long long suffering for his people that he has promised from the beginning in Genesis when Israel was first brought into existence all the way through the Bible that he has covenanted with his people Israel and he will never, never forget his people Israel. And he says forever, several times, forever he will never forget Israel. So if we can grasp that, uh, it just makes the scriptures come alive much more and makes them so much more rich. So Matthew chapter 4, as we were in on our last program, 
it says in 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, and this is right after his um, 40 days in the wilderness and being tempted by the by Satan. Uh, so the beginning of his ministry. From that time, verse 17, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, in other words, turn from your sinful ways to what I am going to offer you, what I'm going to talk to you about. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this kingdom of heaven is what had been promised. It was the thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm ready to set it up. Now go down to verse 23 in the same chapter, Matthew 4. And it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, which was the northern part of the state of Israel today, as you see it on the map, teaching in their synagogues. So the synagogues are specific to the Jews. I think we'll all agree with that. And proclaiming, there it is, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. So now this has gone beyond the borders of Israel and has now gone up into the north and to the, to the east, uh, where you might even find modern-day Syria today, which would be more of Lebanon and Iraq uh, and the state of um, Syria today, perhaps part of Jordan. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. The large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And um, for those of you who are not familiar with the term Decapolis, it means ten cities, and these were the ten cities principally of the Gentiles, and they were located on the eastern side of of the Jordan in the northeast corner, what we would call the um, Golan Heights today, and along down south of the Golan, along the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Gentiles principally populated the city. So it was telling you that not only the Jews, but the Gentiles were coming as well because he was healing. There was nothing in his message, and it's a key point to understand here. There was nothing in his message that was saying, okay, I'm healing you, but now you're going to have to obey my word, and I'm going to lay out uh, ethical standards, I'm going to lay out moral standards for you, and if you don't follow those, you cannot come into and receive the blessings of the kingdom. It was just healing. So, uh, so consequently, everybody's coming. Anybody that had any need uh, principally a physical need, as we see here, but even he was feeding. As we know, he fed 4,000 at one time, and that was just the men. So you can multiply the numbers 4,000, and the second another time was 5,000. You can multiply that by three or four to get a, a sense of how many people in, uh, of all family uh, that were present for these feedings. So these were obviously major, major miracles that Jesus was doing not just because he felt like doing it, he's a good guy, <laughs> and not to be facetious here, but the point was, this is how you attracted people to hear the gospel. You did miraculous things to attract people, and even after Jesus was resurrected back to heaven, that um, the apostles continued to have the ability to do miracles 
to attract people so that they would listen to the gospel, at least listen to it. Whether or not they accepted it was another story, but at least they were attracted to listen to it. And that's what Jesus is doing here at the end of Matthew 4. So what he's going to do when he gets into the Sermon on the Mount here in chapter 5 is he's going to transition from, "I'm come bring your sick and your lame and your needy and I will, he, I will heal them, I will feed, uh, feed them. He was feeding them physical food. Now, he says, I want to feed you spiritual food. And this is where people started to get a little, uh, excuse me, uncomfortable with the message. And why would they get uncomfortable with that message? Before we get into the sermon, I want to go back 1,400 years, a little over 1,400 years. The Israelites had been in, in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. You may have heard 430 years. Well, for the first 30 years that they were there in Egypt, Joseph was alive, and the Israelites were highly respected because of Joseph. But when Joseph died, and it says another Pharaoh came along that didn't know Joseph, and that's when the bondage started, and it got worse and worse until the point where they cried out, and God heard their cry, and he sent Moses to bring them out, just as 1,400 years later he heard the cry of the people and he sent Jesus. Uh, And sometime in the future to us, God will hear the cry of the Israelites again during the tribulation, and he will send Jesus the second time, what we call the second coming. So you can see the, the loving care, the kindness, and principally the covenant nature of God all through this. But going back this 1,400 years, they, he brings them out of um, Egyptian bondage into the wilderness, and because of their disobedience and not willing, not uh, being bold based on their faith in God and going right into the promised land because of the 12 spies, 10 of them coming out and saying, we can't do it, he banished them to the desert. But at the end of the 40 years, The book of Deuteronomy is written by Moses, and in the book of Deuteronomy, this is right before they crossed the Jordan River, when God stopped up the Jordan River for 16 miles so that they could cross in one day, that um, God told them there at the the foot of Mount Nebo by Moses before he died, because remember, Moses could not come into the promised land because he had struck the rock to get water the second time in anger, and his punishment was that he would not see the promised land. But he is um, directed by the Holy Spirit to write the book of Deuteronomy, and it's to that second generation that came out of Egypt that will come into the promised land, and he's telling them their entire future. So this is the first time we see this gospel of the kingdom, if you will, A king is not in view in Deuteronomy because God is the king. But it's the idea that with God as the king, we're going to set up this beautiful time. So what I'd like you to do, first of all, is to go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. So if you go to the very beginning of your Bible in Genesis, if you start working your way back to the right, you want to go to the fifth and final book that Moses wrote through the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's called the book of Deuteronomy. And it's everything that Israel needed to know before they came into the promised land. 
And again, that shows you how gracious God is. He told them things in the book of Deuteronomy that we here, for instance, in America, didn't fully appreciate until, you know, 200 years ago because of science. Well, we didn't need science. All we needed was the Bible. Uh, Moses told the people what to do, and it took us a, (laughs) a long time to figure that out because we just wouldn't look in the Bible. But I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28 is known as the chapter of the blessings and the curses, the blessings and the curses for Israel. And they would be blessed if they believed. They would be cursed if they disbelieved. And God was very clear about that. And one of the very interesting things I find about the book of Deuteronomy when you talk about Israel is the fact that there are 68 verses in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Of those 68 verses, verses 1 through 14 are the blessings. Verses 15 to 68 are the curses. Can't you see that God in his omniscience, his all-knowing power as God, as creator God, saw into the hearts of future Israel and saw that they would be hard-headed, hard-hearted, and that it would take a lot of curses uh, to be brought upon them, the plagues and so forth, to be brought on them, uh, uh, armies uh, being brought to invade their country and so forth, and, and actually all the way up through the tribulation, which is yet to come now, um, all of this was prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy to get them to the point where they would get on their knees and cry out and say, Jesus, we believe that you are the Son of God. And uh, it, it's, it just shows you the long-suffering nature uh, and, and the, the beauty of our, our, of our Father God. But I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I want you to look at verses 10 through 12. This is what the priests, and again, these were not good priests. Most of the priests, unfortunately, throughout the history of Israel were not good priests. And you see God criticizing and castigating them all the way up until the the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and then into the New Testament. Uh, the priests and the and the uh, and their the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth. They wanted to to remember and to look forward to the good things that they saw from a carnal nature. And by that, I want you to look at verses 10 through 12. It says, in the blessings to Israel, so all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. That's what they were looking for when Jesus came. They were looking for this conquering king to come in and just do away with the Roman Empire, which was lording their authority, their political and military uh, and and frankly, social authority over Israel. Uh, so they were heavily restricted, and Jesus would come and just m- remove all of that. And that's what was promised in Deuteronomy. Well, you know what? Jesus would have done that if they had believed him. But that's all they were looking for. Verse 11, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give you. Verse 12, the Lord will open up for you his good storehouse, the heavens to give rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. 
So you see these blessings that were promised, but we haven't read about the conditions that the, you must do something in order to receive these blessings. And that's what we're going to get into in our next uh, teaching portion of our next program. Now, as we always do, we want to move over to our Q&A. And we have been dealing with a question, who is not going to be included in the rapture? Who is not going to be included in the rapture? And of course, the rapture is specific to one uh, group of people throughout the entire history of the Bible, which as of now has been 6,000 years. This only involves uh, people who believed in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, It's called the church. It's the church age. It includes Jews and Gentiles. And when the rapture of the church happens, and I believe it's going to happen fairly quickly because we're coming to the end of the 2,000-year of period or the end of 6,000 years cumulatively, and there's only 1,000 years left to go until eternity, and that's going to be the millennial kingdom. And that only happens after the church is raptured. In fact, the tribulation, which precedes the millennial kingdom, has, the rapture happens before that. So the the point is that one group of people are going to be taken up in the rapture of the church, and that is the church age, um, Jew and Gentile alike. It started in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, and it will end, completely end, no more church people at the rapture of the church. So if that only includes people in the last 2,000 years, well, what about all the other righteous people both before the church, which would be Old Testament, and after the church is taken out, and that would be people in the tribulation. So we have been dealing with those other groups other than the church, and again, that's the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, the Jews at the end of the tribulation who are judged, and the Gentiles that are judged at the end of the tribulation. In other words, all the people living on the earth at the end of the tribulation, there will be judgments there as well. And there will be righteous people in each one of those groups. So we're going through and looking at those, and we've been spending some time over the last several programs looking, first of all, at the Old Testament saints. And the Old Testament saints are those who um, believed through faith in what God had told them, starting, you know, it goes, you have Abraham, but actually it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. But for instance, you have Abraham. Long before Jesus came along, Abraham was counted as righteous by God. And we're exploring what does that mean to be righteous before Christ was crucified? Because we know that everything revolves around Jesus Christ, whether it's Genesis or it's Revelation and anything in between. So how do we reconcile that given that Jesus didn't die um, during what is called the Old Testament times? So we were looking at um, Ephesians chapter 4, 8 through 10, uh, in our, uh, I guess that was two programs ago, and we were looking at the fact that when Jesus was crucified, he went down into Hades first. And in Ephesians chapter 4, 8 through 10, it says that he went down and took captives captive, and then he went to heaven. Well, who are these captives? These captives are the righteous, or what we call the Old Testament saints, people who died 
in or died in righteousness before Jesus was glorified. And they, when they died from Adam and Eve on, uh, when the righteous died, their souls, their spirits went down to Hades, which remember we talked about that being divided between the unrighteous side and the, and the righteous side. And that was, I believe that was Luke 16, where it talked about Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man to the unrighteous side and Lazarus to the righteous side, what was called there anyway, Abraham's bosom, as the rich man looked across that chasm that he could not cross and saw Lazarus leaning against the chest of, um, of Abraham. When, when Jesus died and went down there, he took all of those souls up to the new Jerusalem, up to heaven, and from that point on, anyone who died in righteousness, and of course this is then the church age, anyone who died believing that Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior, their spirit would go directly to heaven. No longer did a righteous spirit go down into Hades. And I want to make it clear right here that an unrighteous spirit, somebody who would not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their spirit still went down to Hades, and that's where they will be. All the unrighteous of all time are there until they're all resurrected at one time, and they're going to be judged at the great white throne judgment at the end of the tribulation, or excuse me, at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of the thousand-year kingdom. And once that's done, then eternity begins. But what about these righteous people? What about these people who died before Christ was resurrected? What all does this mean? So we wanted to go to Hebrews, and that's where we finished our last program, was in the first six verses of the wonderful book of Hebrews. Hebrews, of course, was written to Jewish Christians who were being taunted by the unrighteous Jews, the Judaizers, taunting them, saying, you've got to come back to Judaism. You have to, if you don't leave Christianity, at least do both. And, of course, Paul was saying, you can't do both. You've got to choose. And they had chosen Christ, and that's the point that we wanted to make. These are the people that had chosen to be um, righteous. And in Hebrews 11, it addresses the Old Testament saints. It addresses the Old Testament saints, and it talks about through faith they were saved. So we want to go down and look at um, the next set of verses, and that's in verses 13 through 16. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, all these died in faith, Old Testament saints, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So what this is saying in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews 11 is these are Old Testament saints who were counted by God as righteous 
but they had not received the full promises as yet. What are those full promises that they were looking forward to but were yet to receive? We're going to talk about that in our next program. But remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.